Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined today remotely all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, by Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind Danway.com. How I say, how are you doing, sir? <laughs> I'm doing fine, Kaiser. How are y'all doing? <laughs> It's good to hear your voice. And, Thank uh, you. Here in the studio,、uh, we are also joined by David Moser, academic director of the CET program in Beijing. How the hell are you, David? I'm fine. Do I have to have a South African accent now? No. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You're, you're sitting in Jeremy's、right. traditional seat.、Um, so let's jump right in. Back in 2007, as some of you may remember, many of us in the China watching community suddenly noticed a blog on WordPress being written by an American living in Fuzhou, in、uh, the the the, the、uh, provincial seat of Fujian Province. Uh, this guy was detailing his life working in a barber shop in Fuzhou, and I remember reading it and thinking, "This is great." I mean, a really compassionate, very earnest, and kind of snark-free look at a part of China that rarely receives a whole lot of attention.、Uh, the blog has come up every now and again. I mean, in fact, just a couple of months ago, I think I saw James Palmer, who's been you know on this program a number of times. He discovered it and he was singing its praises. I、uh, met the author of the blog as he was heading back to the U.S.、Uh, several years ago. He went on to enroll in a Ph.D. program at the University of Chicago in 2010. And today we're delighted to welcome Ben Ross to Seneca to talk about this very interesting work on the life, the the work, the culture of the, of the stylists in China. Hey, great to have you on Seneca, Ben. Hey, it's good to be here. Um, so. Before we go on, I should let listeners know that your blog is at benross.net. Is that correct?、Uh, yeah, that's it. Okay, benross.net, and、uh, that if you want to read a,、uh, his account of Thirty Days in a Fuzhou Barbershop, there's a link to that whole section in the upper right-hand side of the blog.、Um, some of you may want to pause while you 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 cue that up and, and, and take a look. <laughs>、uh, anyway,、uh, I guess we should start with the obvious question, huh?、Um, What what got you interested in this particular corner of the great tapestry of urban Chinese life? So、uh, I kind of came to China randomly、uh, in 2004. I had、uh, just finished college about six months ago, and、uh, originally I wanted to、uh, go abroad and live in Africa because I'd studied French.、Uh, I couldn't really find、uh, a job out in Africa or something that I'd want to do, and so I somehow kind of ended up、uh, somewhat impulsively out in a small town called Fuching. F U Q I N G out in F U Q I N G too. Sometimes I forget. <laughs> This is a family friendly podcast, Ben. Come on. So, yeah, so I was living in Fuking, China.、Um, literally, what are you doing in Fuking, China? <laughs> Fuking around.、Um, so、uh, I lived in Fuching for about a year and a half. Then I moved to Fuzhou、uh, for a year. So I was teaching English for about two and a half years. And then after that, I was kind of feeling my time in China winding down. And I kind of realized that、uh, you know in China it's easy for us to make a lot of friends as foreigners,、um, but most of these people we come in touch with are people that speak English, people that are more international, and so I kind of wanted to come in touch with more of I guess for lack of better terminology just regular Chinese folk. So I kind of got this、uh, I got this idea of you know working a Chinese job like a regular Chinese job, and I know I was thinking about restaurants,、uh, you know all sorts of different stuff, and I kind of settled on a,、uh, a hair salon. And my original thought was that it gave me the chance to talk with a lot of customers.、Um, so I got a job in a hair salon.、Um, I talked、uh, talked to the manager and somehow talked him into giving me a job for thirty days. And after about the second or third day, it became well, well, wait, very- wait, doing what? Could you cut hair? <laughs> I mean, oh、uh, yeah. <laughs> What I mean, were you were doing? You, I mean, did you have any competence in? in <laughs> well, and this were you actually, a good hair washer?、Or? This actually comes to an interesting point with the the hairstyling、uh, industry, and the reason a lot of Chinese people go into it is there's no、um, they use the word mungkang, which means kind of like、uh, threshold.、Right. It's an industry that anybody can get into,、um, and you basically start from the bottom. So 
I started as uh, what's called an assistant, like a Julie, or kind of in colloquial terms, a Shaudi, uh, which means you're basically uh, washing hair, giving massages, and you know doing the um, uh, the chores, clean the bathrooms, all that stuff. Uh, basically, starting from the bottom. So I, I was a train. I actually was a hair washing trainee. So to actually cut hair, you've got to do this for about two years. Uh, so that, that's what I was doing at that point. Wow. And so um, did you ever p- progress beyond the trainee? Or you were only <laughs> 31 days. I mean, you- yeah, you know, towards the end, I actually, I graduated and I, I did wash a couple uh, paying customers' hairs wow. uh, towards the end. I, I've since forgotten all my skills. Was it just but- the novelty of having some foreign guy wash? <laughs> I want that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there were a couple of those. Um, there were a couple of those, yeah. Yeah, it was certainly a novelty. I mean, Fuzhou, especially at that time, foreigners are still kind of a pretty exotic thing. So it wasn't, you know, too too often you'd see this six-foot white guy, you know, working at a right. barbershop. I'm going to forgo the obvious joke. That, so Ben got a job in, in a hair salon. And Jeremy, you've gotten jobs in, in hair salons too, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's not what you told me. But all right. Anyway, what do either of you know about hair styling? As I said, Kaiser doesn't know. No, hasn't been know. in a barber shop in twenty years. No, right? I have not. Oh, you're right. I've not for a haircut. Not for. A haircut. <laughs> Ooh, Jeremy, nice. Uh, no. um, so, who is cutting our hair, Ben? I mean, who are these people? I, I wouldn't really know because I, I like I like David said, I never go into barber shops. And um, my, my my bandmate Ko Jung Yoo and I. Uh, we you know we're both these long hairs and um we we do occasionally go in you know to have our hair washed or whatever it's exactly the same conversation every single time I can mouth it word for word it goes wow your hair I mean it's always it's always that it's that same conversation and we're like. It's um, it's it's. I mean, we can we we can you know have that dialogue in our sleep. I mean, it's it's. Um, but but who are these people? I mean, it's all obviously they're 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 whitey, right? If you're in Beijing, they're you know. Right. So if you're getting your hair cut in Beijing, there's probably about a 1% chance your stylist actually grew up in Beijing. I mean, hairstyling in China, it's viewed as a very kind of low status job. Uh Um, And so the vast majority of people doing this are people from uh, rural areas, like the Jun or Cuen level generally who are doing it, even in smaller cities as well. So not only Beijing. So like in Fuzhou, very, very few stylists are actually from Fuzhou. They're from like the surrounding counties or the the cities inland uh, where the economy is not quite as developed. Okay. So uh, are they people with... Pretty minimal levels of education then, I'm assuming. Yeah. So the typical track um, for a hairstylist, uh, <coughs> I'd say the average is probably a chujong. So like, uh, I guess that's like ninth grade, yeah, right, junior grade, high. Yeah. And it's kind of a general theme. You know, you talk to these guys and they're like, oh, 我学习不好, or, you know, 我很讨厌学习. Like they've kind of opted out or, or failed right. out of this uh, wasn't central school, education I never system. liked studying. Right. right. What what draws them to this kind of work then? I mean, is, is this something that they've wanted to do all along? Or you said the munkan is really low. Is it just sort of? Because there isn't other work for them, or uh, so yeah. So traditionally, it was kind of a it's kind of a last resort job. I mean, most mm. people don't want to go into it because they're interested, and this this is changing a bit these days. But um, you know, in the especially in the eighties and nineties, and this this industry really kind of emerged in the modern state um, in, with, with the reforming opening up. But for a lot of people, it was basically um, just an opportunity, you know, a way to kind of make some money to you know to um, buy a house eventually, you know, to get married. Um, and, and in the 80s and 90s, this was a really good career. A lot of people made, you know, for, for, for people without education, people made, made pretty good livings back then. Hmm. 
I mean, we were doing a lot of puerile sniggering about this, and I'm sure you got it a lot too. Every time you talked to people, um, you know, told them that you were working in a hair salon in Fuzhou for a month. Um, but how did hair salons in China come to be so closely associated with that other, you know, old profession uh, with prostitution? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, this, this is this is a really Jer- common Jeremy, question. What did you say? Sorry, if I just may interject a second part to that question, the people that you uh, are looking at, Ben. Um, how much do they feel that their profession is kind of tainted by uh, the pink light? This is this is a big thing. I mean, when I, when I ask directly, you know, what does society feel about this industry? That's a big thing that often gets brought up by these industry members. They talk about this association, um, which really uh, is is really pretty unfair. I mean, so basically, what happened is, uh, you know, in the '80s with China, you know, uh, experimenting with this with this market economy. Uh, you have barbershops emerging, um, but you also have these other barbershops that don't really perform any haircuts. Um, you know, some of them might do like a hair wash or a massage, but they're they're whorehouses. You know, I mean, and you, know, you see them all around with the pink lights, and they say, you know, may roam, may fire, whatever. Um, but it's a totally separate industry. But to a lot of people, they kind of think that there there's kind of this implicit uh, uh, connection. So, like of all the hairstylists of all the of all the hair salons I've been to, it's a totally separate industry. Uh, but for a lot of people, there's still kind of that that implicit um, connection. Right, the association with that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. There's, there's got to be some sort of stratification. You remember, you mentioned that 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 joining, you were, you were a, a shotty, you were just a little helper guy. I mean, how high up does it go? I mean, who, who, who typically owns these establishments? And then, do the people who own them actually operate them? Do they hire uh, a manager? What, what's, what's the org chart like in a typical? Um, so, so typically, yeah, people start out as, as a Xiao Di um, and um, either start like as apprenticing or, you know, nowadays more and more people are going to these specialized training schools. Um, you do that for maybe a year or two, or two before you can actually start cutting hair. And then, of course, with cutting hair, the goal everybody has is to eventually open up their own place. Um, so typically, I would say after about five or six years, you know, if you play your cards right, um, you can open up your, your own barbershop. Uh, now, what's happening now in terms of the organization of it, uh, more and more of these uh, big, salon, these big uh, chains are taking over as well. So like um, in Fuzhou, you have three or four big uh, chains uh, that are also that opening, you know, seven, eight, nine different locations um, around the city. Um, and that's kind of uh, a new thing on the scene. I don't feel like the, the cost of, of haircuts in these very inexpensive places has really kept up with the cost of living increase. Yeah. I mean, it's still incredibly inexpensive to go, you know, get that neck and shoulder and head massage or to get a haircut. I mean, it's 10, 15 quai still to get a basic trim, right? Yeah, and this is this is a really big issue. I mean, the, the industry is really in crisis right now because, you know, as I alluded to before, in the 80s and 90s, a lot of people actually made, uh, made really good money. I mean, I, I have... Uh, a good friend of mine who's uh, in his 40s, and he was telling me like back in the 1990s, he was making over a thousand quai a month uh, washing hair, which is a lot of money back then. Uh, but what's happened really in the last 10 years uh, is you have um, the the, the uh, costs of the industry, particularly um, in terms of a rent, uh, renting a storefront, have gone sure. up tremendously. Sure. Um, but the uh, the cost of the services have pretty much stagnated. So people are pretty worried right now because uh, their real incomes are being eroded uh, by these economic processes. Mm-hmm. Did, uh, is this this seems to me from the way you're saying a subset of the of the migrant community? I mean, it's the same oh, yeah. with the uh, massage parlors, the same with uh, migrant labor. So is is the pattern the same? These hairdressers are usually invited by a friend or something. Why don't you come to Beijing? And they provide they live on the premises and they send money back to their family is the same pattern 
Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, without, I'd say probably 90% of the time when someone moves to a new city, it's because, you know, they have a, a Biaudi or a Biaume or, or somebody they know there. It's the, the chain migration where people are moving around. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Um, my understanding is, I mean, I, I've, I've often been told that the shufus, the people who actually do the haircutting, the, the males especially, tend to come from one of two places. Either they're from Guangdong or they're from Dongbei. Is that is there any truth to that? Um, I, I think it really depends where you're at. I mean, in Beijing, uh, most people in the industry, I'd say, are probably either from Dongbei or from like the Central Plain. Oh, from the Central Plain. Uh, I mean, it really oh. kind of follows these these macro regions of Chinese migration. So, for example, in Fuzhou, most of them are going to be from northern or western Fujian. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, whereas people in southern Fujian will go to Xiamen, which is a much you know a slightly bigger and more economically developed city. So, I think it really kind of follows you know these general big flows of capital across China. A, a couple of months ago on China File, Jeremy, I think you probably saw this too, and David, you probably saw this as well. There was a little photo essay on uh, people in, in Chengdu, hairstylists. Oh, I saw that. Yeah, that was great. Jeremy, did you see that? Yeah, with the, the kind of wacky hairstyles. Right, right, with the wacky hairstyles. And and when I saw it, my first impression was that this is mockery. This is like um, that, that they're they're actually making fun of these people. It's like, let's, let's all laugh at the, the people with their outlandish um, and, and kind of, you know, not very tasteful uh Yeah, these rubes. Right, exactly. Did you see it that way, Ben? Um, I didn't. I mean, I guess part of it's that I'm used to it. But I think, you know, people go into these hair salons and and this is less and less these days, but more more so seven or eight years ago, see these crazy hairstyles with all this, you know, funky dyes and spikes. And actually, you know, a big reason for that is simply because uh, these Xiaodi, these trainees basically use each other for training. And so a lot of times it's not that they are, you know, trying to express themselves necessarily with the hair so much as just, you They've know, been expressed upon. <laughs> They've been expressed upon, yeah. You know, I mean, so when I was working in the barbershop, you know, someone would be learning new style. Like, hey, you know, so-and-so, come over here. We're going to dye your hair orange. You know, and, and at the end of the day, he'd have orange hair and whether he wanted to or not. Wow. So... <laughs> That photo essay, um, they, they did a lot of the photography actually in the places of residence of these of these individuals, and um, that was you know it was yeah. it was it was kind of eye opening, right? Yeah. Um, you know how the other uh, the, the bottom quartile lives. You presumably in in you know your association with these people who work in this profession uh, probably were invited to their homes. I, I know that you know during the course of the 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 summer that you spent there or that that month, um, I read you know your your blog pretty religiously and and. You were, you were, you know, seeing where they lived and, and talking quite a bit about that. Can you give us tell tell us about how these people actually live? Yeah, I mean, I actually I was in I was in Fujian for uh, three months this winter. I was actually living in one of their uh, dormitories uh, oh, wow. the whole time. Um, so typically, um, you know, one, one thing that I should mention with hairstylists is they work incredibly long hours. You know, typically it's eleven or twelve hours a day with maybe only three days off per month. So their home they don't really have a whole lot of time in their home space. Right. And so uh, typically, the typical arrangement is a, a salon is expected to provide free housing. Um, it's not going to be the greatest housing, but it's, it's free housing so that that way they can um, – or, or a very nominal fee so that that way they can um, – the, the employees can save most of their money. So most of these dorm arrangements, they, they call them dorms, are just you know an old apartment without much decoration. Uh, you'll often have you know six or seven people in, in one uh, room. Um, I actually had my own room, uh, which was kind of nice. Uh, the, the place I was living, we only had three stylists living in there. So it was uh, pretty low occupancy. Um, but yeah, this is the kind of the typical arrangement, maybe four or five people in a dorm. Um, after a while, stylists tend to move out. And I think the, the big the time for that to come normally is when somebody gets a girlfriend. Uh, for, for obvious reasons, you're right. not going to want to you know, live uh, with your five colleagues in the same well, room. Well, you mentioned girlfriend. Just now, Kaiser, when he was imitating the voice of, of these hairstylists, he was imitating this sort of... Southern 
you know, Chiang. I don't know what you yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. But was, he was, was not randomly he was, selected, right? He was not intimating or or imitating what we would in, because in the West there's often the stereotype that hairstylists are gay. Mm-hmm. But Kaiser, I know, wasn't doing that. No, but, I wasn't. But but do the do the stylists uh, know? I can do that. I mean. <laughs> But do the do these stylists know of this stereotype, or do they, you know, what they must see foreign movies where the hairstylist is always some, you know, poncy hair. Yeah, yeah, that's probably after the after the um the the prostitution thing. That's probably the number two question I get asked by people. And actually, I would say no. Um, they don't know. They don't know about this. Oh. And it's actually, um, you know, these guys are mostly from countryside areas, so they're. It's not that they're not open to homosexuality. It's just that the idea of homosexuality hasn't even occurred uh, to many uh-huh. of them. Uh-huh. And so I actually had a, a funny little story when uh, a guy who I'm pretty close with, a stylist, he asked me, he's like, you know, what do Americans think about hairstylists? And I just very frankly was like, well, yeah, you know, we think of a lot of them as being gay. And uh, he looks at me and he's like, Ben, my job is to make girls look hot. That's like the most ungay profession you could possibly have. <laughs> actually, but actually, that's, he <laughs> that's doesn't, understand what, doesn't understand so. what making girls look hot. <laughs> All of the designers know how to do that, right? Yeah. right. So it's very um, – I mean the environment, it's a very – it's kind of like a – almost like a hyper-masculine environment. I mean uh-huh. it's um, – I would estimate – I mean obviously you can't just go and ask people, are you gay? Mm-hmm. Um, but I would estimate that the, the percentage of, of homosexuality parastyles is probably – Equal to, if not probably lower than the general population uh-huh. of China as a whole. Uh-huh. Right. So these are a lot of lo- lonely guys in a big city uh, with no money cooped up in a dorm. That's it, pretty, pretty uh, not a glamorous lifestyle that we tend to associate. With. It's no, it's not. It's not at all. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's a lot of time spent sitting around, you know, watching videos on your cell phone and 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 chatting and waiting for customers. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's. Ben, what about um, the, the the sort of aspirational aspects of it? Because. Um, the guy that used to cut my hair in Beijing was uh, from a small town in Fujian, uh, but had um, become uh, quite well known in Beijing in entertainment circles and used to cut a lot of celebrities' hair. Huh. Uh, opened his own salon and was making very good money. Um, also you, doing you, got his, you got his WeChat or his phone number? I'd love to, love to talk to this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. love to talk to this guy, actually. Yeah. What well, Jeremy's saying is that he actually, you know, he, he was like, his stylist was the stylist to the stars. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, my hair was very difficult to cut for most Chinese hairstylists right. because they don't know what to do with curls. Um, uh, but uh, this guy, I think, had probably cut Zhang Yuan's hair, so he knew. Um, <laughs> seriously, is, is there an aspirational aspect of Do some of uh, these guys think that if they make it, they'll be able to become a stylist to the stars? You know, uh, very few. I mean, I think most of their aspirations evolve around, you know, financial things, buying a house, uh, buying a car. Um, I mean, for most of these guys, the hairstyling is just kind of a ways, ways to, 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 to those means. Um, I occasionally get people with, with those kind of aspirations and they tend to be outliers in a certain, to a certain extent. I mean, one uh, girl I know who uh, was a hairstylist had that aspiration and uh, she lived in Japan for 10 years. Um, so you tend to see these kinds of aspirations, uh, from the occasional city people that are hairstylists or people that spent time abroad, but for most of them, it's just kind of the basic, you know, they'll tell you flat out, I just want to make money. I want to get rich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're a, a graduate student now at the University of Chicago and you're doing sociology. Uh-huh. Uh, this work presumably is, is feeding into some, you know, grand dissertation plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what's what's the gist? What's the the, the thrust of um, what you're you're what you're taking on? I mean, it's just sort of uh, presumably this is an interesting microcosmic vehicle to talk about the macrocosm of of, of people on the bottom rung of, of Chinese urban society, migrants who've. I mean, that's 
about putting words in your mouth. Or oh yeah, yeah. So I mean, so what I do as an ethnographer is is what's called um, grounded theory, which basically means you know traditional research. You have a research question, and you go into the field to kind of answer that. Uh-huh. Uh, with grounded theory, it's more like you you find something that's interesting, uh, Chinese barbershops or whatnot. You go in and you kind of you start with your um, with your data, and then you build questions from that. So at this point, um, I mean, I'll be back uh, over the next year or two doing a lot more uh, field work. But at this point, really, I've got kind of three main themes where I'm kind of looking uh, in ter- terms of research questions. Um, the first is uh, gender issues. Uh-huh. Um, you know, this is this this industry is almost entirely men, uh, which wasn't always the case. Um, it's very much uh, it's becoming increasingly increasingly masculine, and that's something I'm interested in. Also, the uh, the second will be the demographic issues. Um, you know, China right now, uh, one of the big things happening in China is this massive labor shortage that's right. in no small part due to the uh, one-child policy. And this is really kind of affecting uh, the industry as well. And the other kind of big uh, theme is uh, kind of macroeconomic issues, um, basically how the economy, um, housing prices, uh, op- the opp- opportunity structure is is affecting uh, people that are in this industry and choosing to go into the industry. Yeah. I, I have one more question. I'm sure it relates to something that you you, have, you can unpack this for us and, and, and tell me what the ramifications of this are. But it seems to me that in every Chinese city that I've gone, there's an enormous, no, a freakish number of, of haircuts. Uh-huh. This is per capita. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it just seems like... People can't. I mean, Chinese hair doesn't grow faster than than, than <laughs> other people's. But I mean, what what is up with that? Is that a misimpression, or are there really just a ridiculous number of barbershops per capita in Chinese? Food? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And and what's interesting now, there's there's an overabundance of barbershops, and there's an undersupply of stylists. So if you look around at those uh, barbershops, you'll almost invariably see a help wanted signs in them. Um, and basically what's happened is because this was such a good industry in years past, you had a lot of people going in and then everybody wants to be a boss. Now that uh, the profits are kind of drying up and because of the uh, the demographic change in China, you have less and less people choosing uh, the industry. So your typical predicament now is, you know, you have a guy who's made it, he's opened up, he's raised the capital, opened up, opened up his own shop, but he, you know, has maybe 10 barber shares and only four four stylists filling them. Huh. So. I wonder if it also isn't the, the same thing that in the West that sometimes uh, beauty salons, I mean, men tend to just go get the haircut and then get out, right? But right. the women sometimes, you know, maybe they're bored at home. The they, like to, it, right? they like to go there and get, you know, get the massage, get pampered, you know, kind of relax. It's, it's like a, a night out or it's like, it's like, a, it's, it's like a cheap form of, of a kind of entertainment, you know, mm-hmm. when they're lonely or something like that. Uh, but that but that doesn't explain why there'd be so many of them in China, no. because that's the fact of life in the West as well. So I don't know. Well, and I think part of that was you know in, in years past you had this overabundance of labor that you could do these kinds of things. I mean now more because it's cheap. People cheap. could say it's just like the reason we all get massages. Mm-hmm. You know you can do it every day. It's just so dirt cheap here. That may be the the big reason, right? Yeah, I mean it's your. Sh- I mean when you had you know the barbershop I worked at, there were it was a small little shop, but there were you know ten little shaudis working there that were basically sitting around doing nothing most of the day. So you could afford to to pamper the um, the uh, the customers. Nowadays, it's especially hard to find these these low level workers. Um, another reason for that is you have more and more people that have parents that can pay for training, so they can kind of skip this step. Hmm. So I think that's that's kind of tied up with this whole labor shortage that no one wants to uh, you know sit there and give you a massage for ten quite an hour anymore. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, fascinating. So we should expect the number of hair salons to go down if uh, uh, the normal rules. If of the, the normal rules of the economy, yeah, and, th- and this is what people are hoping too. I mean, a lot of my uh, guys that run run shops, they're they're really hoping. You know, they they invest all this time and effort. Now there's just too much competition, so they're kind of hoping that that that's that's the case. I have a question because you would know this. So the barbershop I go to, I go to the same one nearly all the time, not because I have hair is. is Difficult to cut like Jeremy's, but just I'm lazy, so I just go to the same one. And they have, uh, he said, which shirful do you want? And they have one that's 
you know, the 50 quai and 80 quai and then the master that's 100 quai. I don't know if he's any better, right? But they already asked me, you know, do you, do you want, oh, yeah. which, which, which do you want? And I always think if I get the 100, how much of that is going to go into his pocket? I mean, how, how, what percentage, when I give them 100 quai, let's say, I'm getting the deluxe, how much of that 100 quai goes into my Sherful's pocket? So, yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Um, stylists work almost entirely um, on commission. So basically, everything is based on how much work you do. I would say on average, uh, the commission, it's probably about 25 to 30% is going into his pocket. Uh, that being said, more and more uh, salons now, it's becoming trendier to uh, offer uh, stock to the, um, to the workers. Stock? Really? Or o- ownership shares. Oh, uh-huh. oh yeah. yeah, I should say, yeah, equity. ownership shares. <laughs> equity. <laughs> yeah. Equity. Equity. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of times the shuffle will have equity in in the barbershop. And because of that, he can actually make more. But the typical commission is about 25 to 30%. Hmm. Okay. My God. I mean, uh, so this is exploitation. Is, it, is that yeah. fair to say? I mean, we, we, we see a lot of labor organization around people who work in, in you know, Foxconn, who work in, in um, electronics assembly plants. Uh, is there anything like I, I, I wouldn't call it exploitation, actually, because the, the boss is getting squeezed, too, typically. So it's one of these situations where um, the boss is feeling the pressure as well. So it's not, it's not a situation where the boss is, you know, and keep in mind of Filthy that, capitalist, you know, sucking the money from the, from right. the proletariat. I mean, keep in mind that, you know, housing costs and rental costs have gone up tremendously. Sure. Um, so a big portion of that money is going through, you know, paying the rent, uh, paying for supplies. So, I, you know, I, I think the squeeze is on all levels. So it's not like, you know, a situation where you've got these fat cats on top that are, that are just making it big. They're, they're feeling the squeeze as well. Hmm. It sounds like it's, it's just a, a, a pretty – you know, fucked up industry. I mean, if anything, either, it's almost like a fraternity system, right? Where you've kind of got to pledge your first couple of years and, and do the do the grunt work, and then once you know, so all these bosses have kind of been through this you know period where they've kind of they they've kind of put in their time. Well, I mean, um, it just doesn't sound like there's been a lot of thought put into how to optimize this industry. I mean, how to mm-hmm. you know maybe uh, it needs to shrink. Prices need to go up. Uh, there, there there is a demand for this, right? I mean, it's it's unavoidable. There's you know, and this is a big thing. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of these like trade organizations and this is exactly what they're trying to do. Um, and when I bring this up, the big response people tell me is uh, they call it uh, like mm-hmm. unhealthy, unhealthy competition, unhealthy competition yeah. you know, because what they'll say is, you know, hey, why don't we get everybody together and let's make a haircut, you know, 50 or 60 quai as opposed to 30, which would be more of the market price. The problem is there's so many barbershops right now that somebody's going to just come in and undercut them. And sure. so this no, is a no big... pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I've been working on that one all week. Yeah. So uh, Okay. Well, what I mean, about status? Yeah. Sorry, if I can just ask yeah, another question in relation to um, other kinds of migrant labor. Um, is it perceived as a better kind of job than working at a Foxconn, uh, Foxconn plant um, or other things that migrant workers do? Um, it is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's, it, they, the word they'll use is like showy. So they call it like a craft. You know, when you're going into a factory, you're kind of doing the same thing every day. You're not really uh, improving yourself. Um, at least based on my understanding of factory work and what I'm told by my informants. Um, but for the stylists, they kind of can look at this and say, hey, you know, I can have a crappy income for two or three years, but after that I can keep developing my technique, I can become a businessman. And so, yeah, you know, they like it in that regard. It's also viewed as clean. Um, you know, a lot of guys tell me they could be making more money, you know, digging ditches or working in construction, but they'd rather be, you know, sitting inside in the air conditioning and, and relaxing. So, since 07, you've stayed in touch with a number of the people that you met early on in Fuzhou, um, in, in Fuching. Uh, what's what's the, been the, the narrative trajectory of their lives? I mean, 
t- tell us about some of these individuals. I mean, by name, and you know, tell us what happened to them and their stories. Sure. So I would say, you know, um, for a lot of people that go in this industry, they go when they're seventeen or eighteen, and there's kind of a period where you're just trying out different stuff. You know, you might work as a, you know, in a hotel for a few months. You might work at a, at Foxconn for a few months. You might be a, you know, a, a hair washer for a few months. Some stick with it. Um, the majority don't. Uh, one guy, this is probably the most interesting case. Uh, one guy, when I came back to, uh, to China a couple years ago, I, I, I sent him a message and I was like, Hey, you're still in the hairstyling industry. He's like, nah, I quit. I'm like, what are you doing now? And he's like, I'm a uh, black dentist. I'm like, what, what the hell's a black dentist? Um, it's somebody who does dental work without any kind of license whatsoever. <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> uh, a few months ago, I actually went down and visited his clinic and, uh, you know, it's in Fuching in this, uh, kind of, you know, rundown area and, uh, it's the storefront and you go in the back and sure enough, he's, you know, they're doing fillings and root canals and whatnot. Um, root canals. No, oh, that's yeah. a serious surgery. I mean, yep. it's really he, root canals. And, and, you know, as Dave brought up, he, he learned this from, he had a brother-in-law that was doing this as well. And uh, he actually, uh, what happened was he was studying hairstyling, but he found he had a, an allergy to the ammonia and the chemicals and he uh-huh. had to quit. Mm-hmm. His brother was a black dentist, needed an apprentice, and sure enough. And so then you worked for a month as a black dentist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think we can discuss that on the uh, Seneca yeah, right. podcast. That might get me in some trouble. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> So I mean that's one 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 interesting character. Anyone else that you you want to want to talk about people who you were you were friends with back then who whose lives you sort of followed? Um, you know, one of the guys, probably my best friend. He uh, he was my old boss uh, at the uh, hairstyling academy, and he's now at the, at the at the at the salon. He actually now is the headmaster of a hairstyling academy. Ah, where in in Fuzhou? In Fuzhou, okay. okay. Um, and so he's got a big office. He drives a car. Um, you know, he sits there drinking tea and making deals with people. Uh, but even him, I mean, he's he's feeling the pinch. I mean, he's you know he's feeling the pinch of the industry. He he looks on the on the on the out outward like he's doing really well, but you know it's it's still a pretty rough life for him as well. Hmm. Um, at hmm. least so he says to me. Um, Jeremy, do you have any other questions? Um, no, I think uh, I well I yeah I, I, well no. <laughs> 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 we could run on for a long time, but uh, I suppose. We're starting to get to the end of our time. Yeah, well, in that, in that case, Jeremy, let's um, let's start with you with recommendations and and, uh, and and let us know what you have for the week. I mean, I, you know, you've been away from China for a couple of months now, uh, and we have our listeners have been eager to hear from you. So, uh, what do you got? Well, I, I've got something that I'm probably going to steal your recommendation, which is a video on the Ant Hill. God uh, damn it, <laughs> <laughs> you dick. <laughs> okay, go ahead, go ahead. Oh. You, you did steal my so, recommendation, though. But uh. Ali Ash's website, The Ant Hill, uh, and a video of a Peking, a sort of little mini profile of a Peking opera performer, very beautifully shot and uh, really worth uh, the uh, ten minutes or so uh, watching it. Yeah, um, Alec uh, and his writers collective, um, they, they have this new thing. So it's Tom Furin and a guy by the name of um, God damn it. I, I'm, I'm spacing the other the the co cinematographer's name. It, it, it's shot on some kind of DSLR, really really nice depth Be- of yeah, field, beautiful, okay. yeah. really beautiful, good sound, great production for such a short little video. Um, a very charismatic hey, person. They really drew drew the guy out, uh, and he's he's a very charismatic individual who they profiled, and they're going to do one every month, right? That's what they say. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's a it's a tr- tremendously good medium. Uh, and I'm, I think, uh, you know, profiling individual lives in Beijing, great, great, great idea. So, yeah, you've stolen mine. I, I'm not going to be able to come up with another one, so I'm just going to just piggyback on yours for the week. 
David, yeah, what do you that's have? Fine. I'm sorry, I kind of knew I would because I, I, I saw you your, your tweeting about it, but uh, that was the one thing that I've seen this week that I thought worthy of a recommendation. So, um, Fair yeah. enough, fair enough. David, Nothing. what do you have Well, Kaiser, you could use the, have people refer to the Bifujian schedule, I mean, scandal, sorry. With the, that, that's that's the worth Bifujian, looking at. Yeah, actually, that is very much worth looking at. And, yeah. and it turns out Bifujian is actually my, my mother-in-law's student, like oh, her, really? her best-known student. Huh. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I know the guy. Uh, well, it's I, probably people who follow the internet and Twitter and already know what we're talking about. But it's, it's worth looking into because uh, this so-called scandal Anyone who knows in Chinese people in media, this what he did was so common. Absolutely. It was so ordinary. So it wasn't in, even... in case people have been living in yeah. a cave and they haven't heard about this yet, uh, uh, tell, tell us what, what Well, what this is a, a, a well-known and beloved, you could say, CCTV uh, host. He does the Chunhua area. Yeah, he right? does the Chunhua. And uh, he, he's also thought of as a man of the people. You know, he's very much a you know popular figure. Was was videotaped at a, at a private banquet, uh, doing what they do, which is you know make fun of the of the Mao. He was singing a excerpt from a one of the eight, eight revolutionary, eight revolutionary operas. operas of Jiangqing that that's called uh, what Zhichu Wei Wushan, taking Tiger Mountain by strategy. Right. And he was inserting little sarcastic asides, and the worst of which is making fun of Chairman Mao by calling him the, the Jiga Biang, the, which is this like uh, <laughs> raised by a whore, yeah. <laughs> but the, what the funny, and then this blew up on the internet that how could you make fun of Chairman Mao and call him a, the son of a whore, you know? Everybody does that at those <laughs> banquets. The TV hosts, pop stars, you know, journalists—they all do just it, what he it, did. Except for us, <laughs> we never, we would yeah. never do anything. So like that's that. why it's worth mentioning: is the hypocrisy of this whole thing. Yeah, and I, maybe it has something to do with Xi Jinping and the jerk who uploaded it. I mean, what a fucking <laughs> yeah. jerk, guy, man! Yeah, was ass kicked, man. Okay, yeah. So look into that. There's some good stories that have been written on this already. And uh, Ben, what do you have for us? What's your recommendation for the week? Wow. You know, actually, uh, so I'm TAing right now uh, for a class, a political science class at uh, UChicago, uh, Beijing. And I'm actually reading uh, The Big White Book, which would actually be Xi Jinping's book. Oh. Um, not sure I can recommend it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, okay. Um, and yet you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a trip. It's, uh, it brings you back memory lane from the uh, – it, it's, it's incredible how similar some of it is, the language, to like the, uh, the Little Red Book. Um, you know, really? It's very, that's not, that's, that's not it's incredible. Not <laughs> that's to be, to be Yeah, to be I'm about granted. three chapters into it. We'll see how far I can get in. It's, it's awful thick. It's about uh, 400 pages, but it's got a bunch of wonderful uh, great pictures of Xi Jinping, you know, uh, taking a walk with his mother, kicking a soccer ball, holding, <laughs> holding his own umbrella. Um, so, uh, well, that's good. I still have jet lag. I'm having trouble falling asleep. I'll probably buy a copy. <laughs> the they're, they're really cheap. They're really cheap. You can find them anywhere. Oh, they're giving them away. <laughs> when I was in Chicago at AAS, there was a huge table of these things. They were just giving them away for free. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. I heard about that. Jeremy, man, good to have you back. Yeah, I know. It's good. It took us only uh, like, five you know, weeks, five weeks of you know, fucking 25 hours of technical time to make it work. But, yeah, uh, including you know, a really half hour of, of agonizing struggle before we finally recorded just today. But, uh, but the Seneca budget is so enormous. You're right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, we'll, we're, we're, you know, I mean, welcome back. I think we've finally got the kinks. We'll still work out a few more kinks and uh, we, we'll have you back again very regularly. Good. We don't want to get rid of all of the kinks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them are on your, on your head, right? 
<laughs> okay, man. So yeah, enjoy the NRA gun show. And, uh, and, uh, we're, I will. Okay, dude. And you, you, what are you driving now? Can you remind our audience what you what what vehicle you acquired when you when you arrived in Tennessee? I, I think we have. Uh, I'm going to be accused of being a carbon criminal, but uh, I do have a rather large truck. <laughs> I mean, are you? Is this was that done ironically? I mean, this your whole life there is being lived ironically. I am, I'm, I'm imagining. No, actually, the reason for the large truck is that my wife plays an instrument the size of a coffin, which we need to get around town. Uh, oh, her so would have been. We, we need a big car. Uh, uh. Okay, all right. Um, oh, I can't wait to see you out there. I'll, I'll arrange a visit, and you've got to, you know, give me some good Tennessee hospitality. Oh yeah. All right. <laughs> Hey. I say, I say, I say, Tennessee hospitality. <laughs> well, thank I said thank you for for taking the time to come on, um, David. Good to see you, man. Yeah, good to see you too. And uh, Ben, I'm glad you could join us. Man. Yeah, thanks um, for having me. Uh, been, this is uh, yeah, been really goofy and weird, but <laughs> uh, we're gonna get a lot of shit for for our, our sniggering again about hair salons. But hey, whatever. We're, we're children at heart. Take care. We'll see you next week. Bye.